0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: Focus is about the ability to attend at will, right? And, and to do so in the, in the presence of distractors. And focus ends up becoming then a, a balance of continuous resources against transient resources. Transient resources things where you're being alerted or oriented to new stimulus in the environment um, and sort of vigilance as a sustained attention piece where you're able to you know, laser-like focus and uh, also be flexible enough to pull things out of your mind, not to stay so focused on something in front of you that you can't think. Um, so it's, it's actually not just more. Uh, you know, performing better is not simply more attention, more uh, focus. It's about control over these things.
2: I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500 episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com.
3: This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving all of in June.
5: That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
6: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter.
4: Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
0: As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips.
2: Andrew, welcome to the unmistakable creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
1: Thanks for having me. Happy to be here.
2: Yeah, it is my pleasure. So somebody from your team actually wrote in and uh, told me a bit about your work that has to do with peak brain fitness. And given that our listeners love this kind of stuff, uh, when I did a bit of digging, I thought, yeah, this is a no brainer. We definitely want to uh, tell this story and really learn about what you do. But before we get there, um, I want to start by asking what social group were you a part of in high school and how did that impact the choices that you've made with your life and your career? And the reason that I've asked this question in particular, uh-huh. is, I see you as a social scientist in a lot of ways based on the work that you do.
1: Oh, that's interesting. Uh, yeah, I, I, I in, in, high school, I was, um, I guess one of the geeks, I guess mm-hmm. that's, 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 pretty, let me think, um, I attempted, I mean, I was a little, little bit into sports, but it was like, you know, track and cross country. It wasn't football and, and soccer in my high school. Um, uh, and I was, the, I was on the chess club, so <laughs> that, that, should, that should put it in context pretty well. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, uh, heavily heavily geeky, uh, you know, some specific academic interests, just a few friends. That, that particular uh, flavor of uh, high school clique, yeah. I guess.
2: How did that um, impact the choices that you made sort of with your life, you know, college degrees, careers, all that?
1: You know, I I don't know that it has, honestly. Um, uh, I mean, potentially having only, you know, at at, at that phase of life, intellectual gifts versus physical Uh uh, may have driven me towards continued intellectual pursuits. You know, it may have, you know, been so self-fulfilling in some ways. Mm -hmm. But um you know, it's it's hard to say what would have been otherwise. You know, mm. uh, I I certainly, as an adult, I became more physical and more capable and in, in, in you know socially as well, uh, which which helps a lot. But um, uh, I, you know, I, it, I when I work with teenagers, parents are often concerned about. Various things are going on with them, and uh, I have a I have a tendency I, I try to remember that with teens and people in high school, so much weirdness and so much suffering and pain is normal. Uh-huh. That that you know, there's so much change going on uh, at these at these points in our lives. Uh, yeah. Role change and social change and uh, intellectual capacity change, and executive function change, and sexual change, and all kinds of things are happening. And they were happening for me, you know, in that time, just like everyone else. Uh, um, so, you know, maybe it, 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 it biased me towards more intellectual pursuits. Who knows?
2: It's interesting because, I, yeah, I mean, I, I remember pretty much from ninth through maybe even the, the end of eighth grade to like the end of senior year, becoming being this very sort of angst ridden, angry uh, mm-hmm. confused person. And I'm like, is this ever going to change it? Like, I think my parents saw me as overnight going from this kid that they, they you know, understood to becoming this sort of demon spawn of a, of a person. They're like, how could we have raised somebody so awful?
1: <laughs> That's funny. That's great. Uh, well, you know, uh, f- from a gerontology perspective, um, we would say that most personality traits, the big five anyways, are largely constant from childhood through old age. Mm. There, there are There are some adjustments. There are some things that adapt to the lives we live. And, and more capacity and, and more sort of mellowing in some of the personality traits because of, of demands on us. But largely uh, 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 gerontologists, social scientists would at least argue that personality is largely uh, uh, constant. So you, you may not be able to blame uh, your, you know, anything <laughs> but, but, but your own uh, wild, wild man uh, nature here.
2: So, so that's really interesting that you said a lot of things don't change, especially given that, you know, a lot of people, I think when they look at things like self-improvement, when they read all these books, they listen to shows like ours, I think largely are driven by this desire to, to change in some way or another. Um, so that being said, you know, what, what you just said about certain things, not changing, how do you actually experience behavioral change?
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, when, when I'm saying things don't change, I really mean personality, sure. uh, um, and, and, and specifically, the, the, research would support the, the Big Five model, also known as the canoe or ocean model. Uh-huh. Uh, opi- uh, for ocean, it's openness, conscientiousness, uh, extraversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism, and those things are all mellow personality-wise, but. Um, I'm a I'm a cognitive uh, neuroscientist, so I I work at the mind brain sort of junction. And for me, it's not so much about personality as it is about resources. Mm-hmm. And so I view the I view the mind largely as a physiologically bound uh, or limited um, uh, uh, resource. And from my perspective, change comes from a couple places. It comes from learning and from, and from the cognitive perspective and, and the social things that, that come along with learning and different relationships, but it, it also largely comes from integrating different resources with different, and, and, and different control systems, improving resources and improving control over those resources mm-hmm. uh, physiologically, neurologically is, is a lot of what we have control over, you know. And, and we're sort of tapping into this idea that um, plasticity is a base feature of Uh, nervous systems of brains and 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 other nerves Um, plasticity isn't something that only happens when you're young it only happens when you you know work really hard at at studying or doing something to yourself it's happening you know always and it's not so much um, if you're going to change it's how Mm -hmm. Uh, in terms of uh, habits created by the environment or, or your response to the environment at least Um, in terms of the resources that you're practicing and the ones you're leaving idle, um, you know, these develop a a wide host of sort of, you know, nuanced expression of your abilities. Now that doesn't mean that you're still not neurotic or extroverted or introverted or whatever in terms of personality characteristics, Mm -hmm. but it means that you can go from being profoundly ADHD and anxious and not sleeping well to incredibly performant, self-assured and, um, capable. Uh, you know, those, those sorts of transformations are possible and they're possible through many mechanisms. Mm -hmm. Um, temporarily, you know, sort of supported, uh, transformation, if you will, through things like nootropics or, you know, psychiatric meds sometimes or other, you know, uh, structural transformations. Like we perform differently when we're in classrooms versus, you know, with our, with our buddies out on the you know, street doing crazy things. Um, so there's lots of ways to accommodate or scaffold change, you know, biochemically or socially, but you can also dramatically go in and change resources, structural and, 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 and functional abilities using things like nootropics and neurofeedback and meditation and, you know, a few other biohacks, uh, essentially.
2: Well, well, We'll get into, into all of that because I, I have so many questions about that uh, just based on what you just told me. Uh, before we get there, I am very yeah. curious what in particular piqued your interest in this area of, of human development? Uh, was it something in college, a, a moment, a class, yeah. a teacher? And the other thing is, why do you think people miss out on things like this? In their lives.
1: great. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Great, great questions. Um, uh, For me, it's not not, not an uh, an event that created my interest in in self change. It was probably like you know everyone else who who really focuses on the need for change. It was suffering. You know, I had my own personal you know cognitive, intellectual, emotional suffering as a kid and as a teen. And I mean, clearly, I was a geek. I had to be somewhat angst ridden, right? (laughs) um, But uh, you know, I, I, I was one of these really early sort of voracious readers and intellectuals. And as a kid, I took everything apart and had to know how it worked. And, you know, uh, for me, the, the, the acquisition of information about how things were put together and and functioned was, was pretty fascinating all on its own. And, um, uh, I, I, I was in a bunch of different health and human service jobs as a, as an adult, but in my late teen years, probably a formative thing. Um, a younger brother of mine, uh, was, was, was hit by a car. And ended up in a coma for several weeks and had a plate put in his head and lost, you know, some of his brain tissue and had uh, sort of a road back from that. That was successful. But, you know, it, it, it was uh, dramatic uh, from my – I think I was in, I don't know, eighth grade or something. Mm-hmm. It was dramatic at that point to sort of see the sudden change in consciousness and, and, and functional ability going from, you know, intact to in a coma mm-hmm. <laughs> with, with a, fairly, a fairly small part of his brain, you know, that had been impacted, you know, maybe half the size of a golf ball or something. Um, and that produced a loss of consciousness, you know, that was so profound that, you know, he didn't, he wasn't functional. Uh, but then, you know, watching that change and watching him him come back from that, uh, over a few years was also, you know, pretty fascinating. Um, and, and we, and this was back in the, uh, uh, early eighties or so. Right. So this was, um, before we knew as much as we know now about the brain back then we thought that, Plasticity occurred in kids, and and based on new cell growth slowing down, um, was sort of over by the time you were some between seven and eleven years old, which which isn't true. You know, now we know that you're still making cells your whole life, but but back then it was sort of you know I, I chalked it up a little bit to this you know young brain rebounding. Um, but over you know that, that got me interested in more of the health and human service stuff, and I ended up working in various. Health and human service jobs for many years, and worked inpatient psych and and group homes for re, uh, multiply disabled, you know, sort of retarded and deaf and blind adults, and you know worked with kids and elders and various circumstances and environments and, and populations and challenges all all over the place in health and human services. I mean, I I was grew up in Massachusetts mostly, and that's a pretty progressive state. It tend to bring brings in the alternate. Or alternative uh, human service approach before other states. So, so Massachusetts and California are the two sort of leaders where they, you know, deregulate or, or or get rid of big institutions and go to group homes and go to you know structured living and other sorts of environments. And uh, um, being in that field in the 80s and 90s meant that I was seeing a lot of transition in human services and got to play in lots of different roles uh, and ended up. Um, Eventually, leaving the acute phase, working in a really dramatically violent uh, psychiatric facility, where I mean I, I learned so much about the brain simply by working in an acute locked facility, psych hospital for four years or five years, whatever it was, mm-hmm. um, that, that, I, that, I, that I learned in almost any other possible uh, setting, academic or clinical. Um, just seeing the, the the range of human behavior function, seeing what different medications and structural interventions did for and, and two people um, was was really telling uh, and so I guess all that you know, came together, and I ended up having to go back to uh, to grad school I, I, I did about a decade, eleven years or so between undergrad and grad school um, i wasn 't terribly... Uh, 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 let's, let's, let's say I was a bit nonplussed by my undergrad career and, um, it was a little difficult and I didn't really realize why. Cause I'm, you know, fairly intelligent and, uh, realized after undergrad was done that I was also profoundly ADHD. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, 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 the emphasis on the diagnosis was getting visible enough that I sort of went, Oh yeah, of course I'm, you know, of course I'm ADHD and I wasn't just a little bit ADHD, you know, after college, let's say aged 24, 25, 80, 28, whatever. I was profoundly ADHD. I was the most hyperactive person in my late twenties, the most fidgety, rapid talking, interrupty, you know, poor planning, going in nineteen directions at once individual in my late twenties, as any you know problem child, uh, uh, eight year old holy terror is, you know, um, and it and and like many many adults do have sort of reduction of obvious symptoms with ADHD. They they, they accommodate. And it becomes sort of like like internal storms and restlessness and distractibility. They manage or they mask or or they you know deal with in some way. Mm-hmm. But but for me, it just didn't reduce at all. It was just full blown <laughs> uh, hyperactivity. And um, then I got involved with neurofeedback, you know. Um, uh, and after everything I had seen, every possible intervention, psychiatric and other you know types of human service. Uh, Neurofeedback was 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 magical to me, you know at that age uh, and I saw it Lifting p- other people's ADHD and anxiety and sleep issues and autism and all kinds of uh, developmental and, and adult things mm-hmm. and I would just stay around and, and I ended up getting a job working in in uh, in neurofeedback in Providence Rhode Island and uh, For this wonderful uh, guy named Larry Hirschberg who still has a practice there and um, for a couple of years I worked for him and saw all these amazing transformations, and then would stick around after hours and train my own brain. And in some ridiculously short amount of time, I went from profoundly hyperactive, you know, uh, but still intelligent, to completely self-controlled, zero ADHD, you know, zero uh, uh, diagnosis uh, or diagnosability mm-hmm. of executive function things. And I did it in something like eighteen or twenty sessions, which is you know fast even for neurofeedback. But it was exactly you know the right approach for my brain. I'd been working in the field at that point for several months, and I was you know getting a handle on how to do it, and was you know m- my own client in that way. Uh, and so for me, that was like a, 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 a call to go back to grad school because I had been sort of popping around different human service jobs and actually high tech jobs. I, I kind of did a bit of both. I. Um, I, uh, the last psych hospital job that I had actually with the, the, I worked for a hospital in, in Western Mass called Charles River West. And, uh, Charles River was at the time it's, it's, it's been closed since at the time it was the most sort of, uh, violent and and acute hospital, psych hospital in, in Massachusetts. And, uh, toward, uh, like the, the, the mid or three quarter point of my time with them, I got pretty badly injured on the job and, and could not, could no longer do the job I was doing. And, uh, had to sort of uh, switch to a more supervisory role and you know, case management role because I, I couldn't do hands-on work anymore. And um, then the hospital closed after a little while, and I had to go do something new. And so I went into high tech and was doing database middleware and sales engineering and eventually tech evangelism. Sort of everything in high tech except for coding is, is, is how I describe my, 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 my tech experience. Um and I did that for several years uh in the sort of Burlington tech corridor in Massachusetts and um worked for lots of really interesting you know companies that did really cool things uh and got kind of tired a little bit with that and not not, not bored so much but got tired of focusing on the bottom line as the goal you know I I I spent 10 or 15 years working in human services where it was all about the individual you know making small progress and and not at all about the bottom line because human service pays really poorly <laughs> And uh, then I had the opposite experience for several years, which was uh, working in high tech where everything was about the money, uh, essentially, the, the, the product and business piece of it. And um, uh, quickly lost interest in that after the first few years, you know. Mm-hmm. And so uh, getting a part-time job just to experience some neurofeedback uh, environments Really reoriented me and I ended up back in, in grad school a few years later studying cognitive neuroscience because we just didn't understand neurofeedback. I mean this was in 2002 I think and um, neurofeedback was discovered in the late 1960s sort of simultaneously if I if I understand the history correctly by uh, Joe Camilla up in San Francisco and um, Dr. Barry Sturman at UCLA in, in L.A. Uh, in the late sixties. And Joe was doing, um, human alpha conditioning work. And uh, Barry was doing some work with uh, something called SMR, which is a a sort of magical frequency in the brain in some ways, um, sensory motor rhythm. And he was uh, working on cats and found that cats that had had some training in SMR were ridiculously resistant to seizures. They had, you know, they could be exposed to toxic chemicals that would normally cause seizures. Uh, and their brain showed this sort of metastability and resistance to seizure thresholds, you know, so the seizure kindling and things. And he went on to train his lab assistant who was seizure, uh, who was epileptic and uh, was not having good control of her seizures with meds um, and profoundly reduced her seizures very quickly. And that was sort of the start of the, the clinical application of neurofeedback. Um, it took a while for some of the alpha work that Joe Camilla and some other people like uh, Eugene Peniston were doing to really find an application for alpha training alpha the the, the training different frequencies in the brain has different they're sort of different categories and when you train up smr which is a form of low beta you're training things that are cognitive largely um you're training concentration focus inhibitory control you also might be training sleep smr is a frequency involved with sleep and with smr you also again raise the seizure threshold which means you reduce the likelihood of seizures um, and so there's a whole category of neurofeedback that trains SMR or other beta frequencies to add sort of it's, – it's like, it's like a muscle building or almost an arousal model of the brain where you build uh, resources in certain directions. Uh, alpha training is very different, uh, what Joe Camille was doing. And then eventually alpha-theta training is sort of the dominant form of alpha training in the field these days. And alpha-theta training is this bizarre beast that is also rather magical that produces a hypnagogic state sort of halfway in between uh, asleep and awake and gets the conscious mind out of the way. So it's used by, for various purposes, including things like um, creativity and spirituality and access consciousness, but also for re-regulating over-aroused brains like shaky alcoholics that you know can't downregulate without alcohol. Uh, Alpha Theta can sort of rebuild the ability to drop into deep, slow, uh, receptive states, which is something that that burnt out alcoholics lack for instance um so there's various you know things i was seeing happening in the field at that time you know and i was seeing people have these crazy transformations Uh, and then i went through one myself and had to go back to grad school uh and i ended up going to ucla for a few years and getting a phd and you know here we are a few years later so
2: wow Uh, so many questions based on, on all of this. Uh, you know, I, I kind of experienced the ADHD, maybe not as extreme as yours, but like when you get Mm -hmm. fired from every job you've been at, you start to wonder, it's like, okay, there's something wrong. (laughs) And at, at a certain point, you know, I I remember thinking, why has nobody ever mentioned this? And I, I totally get that. Like that, that was my story in so many ways. And now, you know, I have to sit around and do things that require intense amounts of focus, like write books um, and I always wonder, you know, what made that transformation possible. Uh, part of me wonders if it was just that the work itself was not interesting enough.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, that's certainly a big feature in ADHD is the interest um, component. I mean, it's, it's actually the key feature. I think you've 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 actually landed on. What is both uh, a, a, a central component of how it works and also why people often don't understand it? You know, if you don't have ADHD or know somebody immediately around you that has a significant case, so to speak or a brain that works that way. It's, I, I actually don't believe it's really pathological. It's just one of the ways the brain can be tuned. Um, you know, it's, it's a hunter, you know, wide-focused, novelty-seeking brain versus the gatherer, heads-down, you know, sustained attention brain. Mm-hmm. And it has some benefits, you know, it being this way. But it has benefits for, in highly stimulating environments. And in fact, this kind of brain can be conceptualized. It's not always this way, but it, it often is, that it's under-aroused in terms of the executive top-down control. And so, bottom-up mechanisms for orienting your attention and uh, perception and sensory integration of information um, don't usually uh, take control of the of the ex- of the system. Usually, to the executive who decides what direction things move in. But when the executive system is a little bit under aroused, the other modules kind of drive the system, and you get distractibility, impulsivity, everything else. Uh, that's how you can conceptualize it. Except that in high engagement high stress high novelty environments people that have the adhd if you will brain Mm -hmm. their prefrontal cortices light up uh and become super active and super focused and they have the ability to focus in a way that i would argue is you know supra normal supra typical um there's sort of a trope of the 16 year old with adhd who can sit and play video games without a break for like 26 hours in a row right that's not necessarily a deficit of attention, right? It's, it's, it's a surplus or a surfeit in some ways. It's not well regulated. They can't do that in a boring classroom.
7: Uh-huh.
1: But you can do it with a high-stimulus environment. And this is also the same reason that people that have these kind of brains tend to seek out high-stimulus behavior, risky behavior even. Things like motorcycle riding and surfing and skydiving and <laughs> dr- drug use and risky sex and you know all these things – the risk, the 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 novelty, the the thrill, the engagement—all of this stuff—produces uh, a, a prefrontal cortex that is fully on.
2: I've been an having surfer, so I. Yeah, I <laughs> you go. <laughs> Just made and me you laugh. know,
1: when you're when you're you know engaging every muscle in your body and every a bit of attention in your mind to judge what you're going to do in the next eight, uh, 80 or hundred milliseconds, you're on. Mm-hmm. You know, so when you're 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 functioning at your peak, and that feels good. Yeah. And therefore, you'll seek things that reinforce that. Now, unfortunately, your, you mentioned earlier your, your, your parents may have thought you were a holy terror at one point. <laughs> and, 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 and here's the reason potentially why. Um, your prefrontal cortex was half asleep when you were a bored kid. However, if you picked a fight with your parents or did things that got them to yell at you and created conflict – Conflict also lights your PFC up really nicely. So high stimulus things that would be annoying to them would get you to engage. And having conflict with them would get your brain to fully engage. So you probably self-selected behaviors that either were really interesting and, and you know not boring or that created conflict with your parents so that you had uh, a prefrontal cortex fix and you felt alive.
7: Planning for your next trip?
1: You okay. can tell your parents it's not completely their fault.
2: <laughs> well, let's do this. Um, I, I really want to start doing a deep dive into your work and all this neurofeedback stuff and how it can actually be applied to our life. And I'd like to look at it through a couple of different lenses. Uh, the first being mental health and depression, again, an area that for you know, f- I am personally familiar with having dealt with uh, my own issues around it and you know, how neurofeedback plays a role in all of that. The second that I want to do is look at sort of focus and flow and, and how we can leverage it, and I'd like to talk yeah. about nootropics as well, um, about things like modafinil and neuroenhancers and things like that, and kind of what your perspective is and what your research shows about this, and then look at it mm-hmm. uh, through the lens of creativity and creative breakthroughs.
1: Sure. So, starting off talking about neurofeedback, we can we can divide it to some extent in approaches that remediate a deficit versus a peak performance or a flow, you know, mm-hmm. pursuit. Um, uh, are you interested in, in 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 depression specifically, or just yeah. sort of mental health? Yeah, yeah so I, that, so I am.
2: I yeah. am interested in depression specifically, but if we can you know, start with depression and look at just overall mental health. Yeah,
1: sure. So, so um, um, I'll, I'll actually couch this in terms of broad mental health. Uh, it, just just to start off by saying that almost all of the time when we train brains this way, when you exercise your brain in this way, something seems to show up, and it's and you know I I just really think it's resiliency. Um, it's the ability to handle stressors without falling over. It's, 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 um, more control over whatever resource or function we're working on. Now, when, when you, when you drop that back to mood, um, you know, I, I, to some extent, I think because of my clinical experience inpatient, I tend to think broadly of, of mental health in terms of classes of problems. And for me, it's often things like, uh, mood disorders, thought disorders, uh, executive function disorders and uh, personality disorders, you know, and 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 substance use disorders. It's sort of those axes, if you will, mm-hmm. and it's not exactly the axis, you know, one through five that the DSM uses, but it is those sort of clusters. And and to some extent, there's a physiological clustering in my mind, or a behavioral, you know, in terms of what happens when you when you when you're in one of these areas. But the 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 mood stuff, um, a lot of mood is really tied up aggressively. Um, in the brain with anxiety. And so I think what is, you know, just like other things are lumped together and misdiagnosed, I think what is depression can be very many things for for different people. You know, um, uh, uh, for some folks, it is, you know, crippling weight and dread. For some folks, it is this gnawing, you know, lethargy or helplessness and hopelessness. Um, regardless of how we we define it in the DSM, it, it is a significant challenge in mood that lasts for a while. Um, a lot of these profound mood dysregulations uh, seem to be at least partially mediated by hemispheric laterality. Now, there's a lot of work by Richie Davidson uh, who's involved with um, – uh, uh, mindfulness in the brain and, and neuroscience projects. But um, even before that, he was doing work on mood in the brain. And there's a few really interesting things about hemispheric laterality that show up, including that there's often a, an asymmetry in the wrong direction in the frontal lobes when you when you have some depression. It's, it's not exactly frontally frontal lobe bound purely. Um, Dr. Davidson's early work, I think, pointed the frontal lobes as being really the, the, the place where this was happening. And I think a lot of his more recent work has sort of softened the emphasis on the frontal lobe, although there is a a laterality uh, component still. What I mean by that is uh, left versus right distribution or activity of certain functions. Um, From an EEG point of view, in terms of my work in neurofeedback, um, neurofeedback is the training process where you exercise or shape via operant conditioning or instrumental conditioning. You shape brain activity. Um, But you just have to decide how to shape it. And the assessment part of the process is called QEEG or quantitative EEG. And in QEEG, you gather resting baselines of of EEG usually and then sort of compare them mathematically to a normative database with several thousand people's brains in it. And when I do this with people who are depressed – you know the, the the reference sample is a is a quote unquote clean and typical population, so no mood disorders, no substances, no caffeine, no head injuries, yada yada yada. Um, and when I when I get somebody who's got major depression and a history of that, um, usually on or off meds, symptomatic or asymptomatic, um, there's often and this is you know what was suggested by Dr. Davidson's earlier work, there's often a frontal asymmetry, meaning that from an EEG perspective, there's an excess of alpha waves on the left front part of the brain. And there's an excess of beta waves on the right front part. Now, to, to typical or healthy, if you will, average brains usually have more alpha on the right front and more beta on the left front. Now, let me break those down, uh, the, uh, what that actually might mean. Um, alpha is is at least five or six different things in the brain. So it's not a simple phenomenon. But we can think, uh, again, in, in terms of the brain as a regulatory uh, structure. And alpha is an idling frequency often. So when you close your eyes, for instance, the visual cortex drops into alpha because you don't need to use your visual cortex with your eyes closed. Your your primary visual cortex is mostly there to be the screen that you project stuff onto. So if you close your eyes, you get alpha waves back there. Uh, Frontal alpha uh, can be a couple different things. But when it's this asymmetric alpha, when it's left dominant, then you go, huh, that's not really what you want to see. And in contrast, beta is an active frequency. You know, you're thinking in beta. Your cells are pumping out uh, uh, faster frequencies. Um, to put it in, in, in context, n- numerically alpha is like 7 to 13 and beta is you know, 12 to 38 or something. There's various sub-frequencies in there. Um, and when you see a left-dominant alpha, it means that the left is not active enough and the right is too active. And to some extent, these ratios track across – Mood and even things like joy and even things like approach versus avoid behavior. And approach versus avoid is one of the underlying theories for things like depression. I mean, there's there's uh, various theories for why depression shows up, um, and then in terms of how it operates, there's an observation that when you have major depression, you're more in the avoid versus approach you don't explore new environments you stay at home you you it's a glass half empty if you will versus glass half full kind of bias it's a negativity or or withdrawn bias versus an exploratory and positivity bias and you can see that a little bit in frontal asymmetries and so that's one of the 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 ways we use this tool when when working with clinical things is saying okay here's some brain activity that's showing up it's unusual at a population level and the literature often suggests and clinical experience often suggests that this pattern might mean depression. And then sir or ma'am, do you have a history of some depression? Cause that's what this might mean. And you, you, you may be catching a bunch of qualifiers here, Srini and how, how I'm presenting this stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the quantitative EEG process is not a diagnostic snapshot the way something like MRI with uh, MRI is where you look at tissue and say, aha, there's something happening here. Right. MRI is a statistical pattern. Sorry, sorry. QEG is a statistical analysis of you compared to what is typical and often happening in brains. Now, just because you're different than typical does not mean something's wrong, but it might. <laughs> and, and there's a lot of overlap between what's a healthy pattern and what isn't, but certain things are really robust, certain patterns really jump out. And this is relevant for the other questions you've asked about how this stuff is used. Mm-hmm. Um, for, th- for clinically, you know, if I see a frontal asymmetry, I think, ooh, depression might be a feature here. If I see – if I get a complaint of depression, but what I see is hypervigilance or rumination patterns, which show up as hot spots, you know, excess beta in the back of the head, eyes closed, not enough alpha, we think of that as hypervigilance. You know, the, the visual cortex and sensory cortices staying lit up just in case. Or um, you see excess beta over the anterior cingulate, which is involved with switching attention. And you think, hmm, maybe that's maybe that person's uh, anterior cingulate is, is you know, a hamster wheel driving in circles and thinking of the same thought and can't actually switch. I wonder if there's OCD there. Um, and, and, you know, this is a bit uh, like a phrenologist in some way where you're looking at Uh, data or looking at variability and trying to determine function but it's but it actually is more slightly more accurate than phrenology it's it's you know it's it's a step up but it's a step below you know pure neuroimaging in terms of what you're looking at and that's what's why it's a bit of a um, an artful tool if you will and it's also why it's really important to have these really, you know, large, well-cleaned databases and different analysis tools where you can look at the data from many different directions and try to get an emergent sense of what might be happening. And that's the that's the skill of the neurofeedback clinician. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a cognitive neuroscientist by education and training. I'm a, I'm a neurofeedback person by career um, and a biohacker, you know, sort of by calling. Um and for me, the QEG is this beautiful window into what's happening. Um, the, I, I use QEG a little bit different than most of my colleagues. Most of my colleagues in neurofeedback, and there's probably 10,000 of us in the world um, or so, uh, are, are clinicians of some sort, are therapists, social workers, psychologists, uh, psychiatrists, you know, whatever, nurses. And they're usually some, some psychol- psychological or other allied health profession and usually they've discovered neurofeedback after becoming a health professional, um, or fitness professional. And then they get trained in neurofeedback for a few weeks in a course, and then they start doing it. Um, I discovered it before, uh, I had sort of landed on what I wanted to be when I grew up, you know, working for, for Dr. Hirschberg in Providence. And, um, I I went and got a degree in cognitive neuroscience, you know, let me, let me back up a tiny bit. Um, at the time, this was again, 20 or 2002 or so at the time, neurofeedback had been around for a long time, uh, was not well understood. Um, it's still not well understood, but you know, it was less well understood, uh, 10 or 15 years ago. And I was learning about it was fascinated and I lucked out in having a mentor like Dr. Hirschberg because he was not, you know, he had not joined any of the churches of neurofeedback, the different ways in which, you know, people believed it was working. He was, he was uh, fairly agnostic in that way and was continuing to educate himself. And that means that I got to work with all of the hardware systems and software systems and he had me trained up in different ways and different preparation. And, and we didn't necessarily believe any of the ways that it worked. Um, in, in terms of how people were explaining it, we just learned the neuroscience and the tech techniques, and then tried to apply them as best we could. Uh, and over that time, I got a real appreciation for neuroscience. Uh, Dr. Hershberg is a clinical psychologist, but you know a very neuro-heavy one. And I ended up, you know, going to get the degree uh, inspired by what I was seeing. But at the time, there were about three different sort of churches of neurofeedback, and they all had completely different ideas about how it was working. And to some extent, the ideas that, under, that were underpinning uh, the theories were in conflict. They could not be reconciled. And yet, uh, all three of the major approaches that, at that time were having efficacy rates in the clinic in like the 80 to 90 percent range. And I don't know how much you know about, about mental health, but 80 or 90 percent efficacy is ridiculously high for any intervention. I mean, psychiatric meds is you 50 percent or good meds. Um, Uh, therapy is, you know, 50%-ish for some things. Um, Nothing approaches 80 or 90%. And neurofeedback for some things is reliably 80 or 90%. The big gross regulatory things like migraines and seizures and ADHD and sleep issues. Um, And so, you know, uh, at that time, When everyone was clamoring that they knew what was going on, but it was irreconcilable, this was, I I joked that it was what I call a blind man and elephant situation. We just didn't know, you know, how this stuff was operating. So at the time, you know, um, there was these three completely conflicting schools of thought, and yet great efficacy across all different types. So for me, it was a blind man and elephant situation. So I had to go back to grad school and figure this out. And over the time, you know, since, we've discovered these discriminants, these these biomarkers in the EEG. And when we see frontal asymmetry, we think depression. And when we see a high theta over beta ratio, we think ADHD or other executive function. In fact, the FDA a couple of years ago approved a diagnostic headset that's simply measuring uh, a variant of the theta beta ratio, I'm pretty sure. Um, And uh, Vince Banaster did a lot of good papers on how the theta-beta ratio is highly correlated with executive function, like 92%, 93 94% or above. You can blindly sort data into you know, ADHD and non-ADHDs and just a couple of these markers. Um, and so when we see these in the clinic or, or the gym, the brain gym, so to speak, we uh, uh, go after them. And, and for me, grad school is all about trying to understand the neuroscience so that I could learn to implement these techniques better. And that's a little bit how we're different. But it's the same approach and the same you know, technique for the most part in modern neurofeedback. Mm-hmm. It, is, it is applying neuroscience with modern tools. You know, the databases and QEG systems and EEG headsets I'm using now are far more sophisticated than what I was using you know, 10 or 15 years ago. And actually less cost than they were 10 or 15 years ago. But they're not fundamentally different. They're elaborations of the same approach that we still understand a little bit imperfectly. Um, And so for clinical work, you know, you you have to sort of work with somebody, uh, a a neurofeedback clinician, who has worked with your thing. You know, if you've got a lot of head injuries, you probably don't want to work with somebody who's never seen a head injury before. If you're profoundly ADHD, well, actually, everyone's seen ADHD, so scratch that. But, you know, if you're an alcoholic and you're trying to use neurofeedback to help rebuild your, you know, your brain, you know, work with someone who's worked that way before because there is some domain expertise in terms of what works for what clinical populations, which biomarkers are most relevant for those populations in the QEG, and which techniques, you know, seem to um, produce the quickest and best uh, effects. So... That's how we approach the, um, the, the, the clinical, if you will, uh, mm-hmm. remediation side. Wow.
2: Okay. So let's do this. Let's, um, let's talk specifically about, I think, the thing that will probably be of most interest to our listeners is leveraging this for focus, productivity, and flow.
3: Yeah. Um,
2: because, I mean, as a writer, as a creative person, that to me is probably the most optimal thing I can experience on a daily basis. So I'm always curious when I talk to people like you how I can have more of it in my life.
1: Yeah. So, so focus is about the ability to attend at will, right. And, and to do so in the, in the presence of distractors and focus ends up becoming then a a balance of continuous resources against transient resources, transient resources, things where you're being alerted or oriented to new stimulus in the environment, um, and sort of vigilance as a sustained attention piece where you're able to, you know, laser like focus and, uh, also, be flexible enough to pull things out of your mind, not to stay so focused on something in front of you that you can't think. Um, so it's it's actually not just more, uh, you know, performing better is not simply more attention, more uh, focus. It's about control over these things, um, and and, th- and that is true of flow state. I mean, I, I would argue the reason that flow state is so attractive is because it's an intuitive concept. We've all been in flow state where we have, you know, what I really consider access consciousness, and it's this knowing state, if you're doing it mentally, and it's this performance state, if you're doing it in some, you know, in the zone way, you know, you're, you're, you're golfing, you're, you're playing your, your high performance sport, whatever it is. I think it's all the same thing. It's getting the, the extra busy cognitive self out of the way and bringing the, the, the well learned and, and sort of deeply resourced skills, uh, into the driver's seat. Um, some of that's getting out of our own way. And some of that is building resources so that we don't vary in our performance quite as much. We don't drop off when we are fatigued or challenged or there's too many things demanding our attention. Um, How you can do that is you you certainly can do neurofeedback. SMR training brings up cognitive abilities, especially inhibitory control. And I've been hinting at earlier, inhibitory control is a lot about how the brain does its job. And so as you bring that up, ADHD drops away, uh, focus and vigilance go up. You can also train up active faster frequencies in beta and give yourself that sense of laser-like limitless attention. You really can, you know, tune that in with neurofeedback. But neurofeedback, as, as I've been describing, is a little bit of a complicated, long process. You've got to do this training for a few times a week, for a few months. It'll make big changes, but, you know, it, 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 it's a process. Um, I think more people don't do neurofeedback for the same people, same reason that more people don't have, you know, washboard abs and 10% body fat from going to the gym five times a week or three times a week. It's because it's not instantaneous. It takes a commitment and it takes some, uh, some time to tune in what's going to work. Um, uh, but you can train up, you know, faster alpha frequencies, the access to flow state. You can do this alpha-theta work and get access to consciousness sort of, you know, create creative, uh, generative, uh, internal states. Um, and so, uh, what performance is for you versus the next person might be different, right? Trini. So mm-hmm. if we look at your brain and, and you've got a lot of attention resources that appear to be pretty classical and, cl- and, 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 performant, and we, we assess your attention and find that you're, you know, a couple of standard deviations above average in how accurate and quick you are in your attending, but we also see hypervigilance and a little uh, a few of the other anxiety markers and you report sleep is bad then your performance is all about getting the things the, the bottlenecks out of the way but if you're inattentive you're stuck in alpha mode you're spacey then the performance stuff's all about getting beta getting some new resources laid in um so you can do that with neurofeedback uh for folks that don't have access to it aren't interested in spending a few grand on their own systems or on engaging with a clinician you know the 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 obvious answer that I hope many of your listeners already know is meditation and mindfulness.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, that is absolutely profoundly effective on the cluster of executive function challenges that many of us would love to re, uh, remediate um, from a deficit or a peak performance perspective. Um, the 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 problem, the, the disconnect, I often find here is many people. Have a percep a perception about what mindfulness and meditation is. It's a little bit off the mark, you know. Mm-hmm. It's all caught up with trappings of spirituality, and, you know, <laughs> Buddhism, and and yes, meditation and mindfulness are Buddhist, you know, essentially uh, 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 processes or or skills. But they're also present in many other forms of you know uh, uh, life. And I would argue that Buddhism is the least religious, you know, belief system that there is. In fact, it it, it at least in classic old forms of Buddhism, uh, you know, sort of uh, uh, Theravada, which is Indian or Southeast Asian uh, Buddhism now, um, that is sim- that, that stuff reads more like psychology textbooks than like anything else. There's very little concern with cosmology and there's everything about how your mind works and how to get control of it.
6: Uh-huh. So
1: um, in modern parlance, mindfulness and Western, you know, Western meditation, if you will, is a sort of slightly sanitized version of, meditation that I think misses some benefits of meditation, but also, uh, um, uh, does emphasize some of the key features. And, and I will define mindfulness as, uh, uh, paying attention, uh, in a specific way to the present moment on purpose. Um, and ideally with curiosity or with a sense of, uh, uh interrogation. And the reason I had that last one, and I, and this is why I teach meditation is because, uh, It's so easy. I mean, you you will have internal dialogue. You will have judgment. You will have uh, evaluation um, of what you're doing, and you'll also have second and third thoughts. You know, things that are happening that are being spawned by other thoughts you're having. Your your mind is like a pool, and you're dropping pebbles in it, and each set of ripples is causing other ripples. You know, Um, it's a pretty busy environment. So people people often have resistance when I teach. Or when I talk to them about mindfulness or meditation, and, and one of the first things I often hear is, um, well, I can't shut my mind off. I mean, I can't meditate. I'm not any good at that. You know, I just that's not, that's not me. And the problem is that that's actually not what mindfulness or meditation is. It's not shutting your mind off. I mean, you might get to a place that has more spaciousness internally if you meditate. But the act of meditation is not that. The act of meditation is attending in a specific way to the present moment or to some other anchor on purpose. Um, So when you attend, if you watch, you know, your breath crossing your upper lip or the, the air in and out of your belly or some sound or some mantra or whatever it is, when you anchor your attention in a specific way, what happens is it doesn't stay anchored because you're alive and you have a frontal lobe that, you know, isn't perfectly zoned in all the time. And other parts of your thoughts and your mind and your brain and your knee and your stomach and your you know, sex organs, everything else is clamoring for attention and sending input. And so within moments of anchoring your attention and starting to meditate, your mind drifts and you have a thought or a wish or you notice your knee hurting or you, you notice the cute girl sitting next to you <laughs> or whatever it is or your stomach rumbles or you plan the next thing you have to do that day. That's not a problem. In fact, that is – That is the moment at which you're about to do the rep of meditation. So you notice that, you go, not right now, in some way. You you let that go, and you redirect your attention back to the anchor of your meditation, whatever it is. That right there, you've just meditated. That That was a meditation. And then you do that for a few seconds until the next thought or memory or wish or fantasy intrudes. You notice it, let it go, back to the meditation. That act of notice, redirect, notice, redirect... That's meditation. And and you can do that. And that's easy to do conceptually and a little bit tricky and and kind of annoying and maybe boring to do Mm -hmm. uh, for the first few minutes as you learn to do it. Um, But you can do it. You you can learn to do that. And and that aspect over time builds frontal cortex, builds self-control, builds emotional resiliency, builds cognitive resource, um, spares you the normal ravages of cognitive aging. Uh, you know, Losing cortex um, can eliminate or offset dramatically childhood or adult ADHD based on you know, work by people like Sandy Liu and uh, Siggy Hale. Um, there's all kinds of – oh, and then the aging work for meditation is by uh, Lazar, largely L-A-Z-A-R. Um, there's, there's lots of benefits of meditation on the brain, um, but again, you have to do it. You know, if you meditate for three hours once a year, mm-hmm. nothing happens. If you meditate for 20 minutes every day, everything happens. And so it's not about how much you do or how perfectly you do it or if you can get your mind blank. It's about do you do you engage in that effortful attending in a specific way
6: mm-hmm.
1: to the present moment? And then if you find yourself judging or complaining or being bored, that's where the sense of interrogation or curiosity comes in. That can really help you. Get over any initial resistance or judgment or self-doubt is just be curious about what's happening instead of evaluative, you know?
2: So it's interesting because I, I do 10 minutes every day with uh, an app called Calm, which I'm, I'm guessing you're probably familiar with mm-hmm, given, sure. given your background. Um, and yeah, I've definitely found that it's helped. So I think one of the things that's really interesting to me, because we had Susan Piver here, uh, a Buddhist meditation teacher, and she even said, she's like, this isn't something that it, the, the length of it isn't as important as the frequency, which I thought was really interesting. So I started off with like two minutes. I've never been able to get past 10 minutes. And I'm curious oh. if I'm able to sustain longer periods of meditation, does that increase my ability to focus on other things for longer periods of time?
1: Um great question. I don't know that the neuroscience literature supports that any more than about 20 minutes is necessary. That being said, a lot of the literature that's more broad is correlated with thousands of hours of meditation, you know, lifelong meditation accumulated. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will tell you this, if you get beyond 10 minutes, things will change. Things will absolutely change. Okay. Uh, and, and, you should, and you should go and do a, um, a half-day retreat a couple times a year too, because that will change how you meditate. Um there is something that that and, and I can't describe it, you know, from a neuroscience perspective. I can just describe it from a meditator perspective. And and I know a little bit about 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 the neuroscience of meditation, but I know more about you know how to meditate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um and what happens when you do just be from a, a more Buddhist perspective. So yes, things change uh and you get more capacity. You get more capacity to meditate. But I think, and, and I'm going to hazard a guess. You know, I'm not, a, I'm not a Buddhist meditation teacher, although I am a, a Buddhist meditator, um, uh, and I teach meditation occasionally. But I don't hold myself up as some you know meditation guru at all. I'm mm-hmm. I'm I'm a, I'm a biohacker. That's you know uh, a brain coach. That's that's about where it, where it ends. Um, all that being said, I think what happens when you start to meditate for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes at a sitting is that what shows up next is equanimity. Is Being more even keel, taking things less personally, being less flappable, being more resilient and sort of like weeble wobbly in your in your feeling tone, your emotional tone, your reactivity, all that tends to just calm down. And I think that i mean, to me, that's an inhibitory tone feature as well. But I think that starts to show up 20 minutes, you know, 30 minutes a day in for many people. Um, Let me give you a technique that might get you beyond 10 minutes. All right. Uh, you, you may, you may have already medit- you may already meditate this way. It's really basic. So, uh, I like to give people a focus. doesn't matter what it is, but, um, my, my classic way of meditation is doing a Samatha or single point awareness for like five minutes. So I'll set a timer to go off five minutes into a 20 minute, um, meditation and then another bell to go off 15 minutes later. So I get a 20 minute, uh, uh, meditation, essentially. But the first five minutes, I'm focusing on the narrow point, the narrow sensation of, of air crossing my upper lip as I breathe in and out. That's it. Packing it down. Narrow, narrow, narrow. And I find narrow packing of attention, samatha, single point awareness, can, can quiet things pretty quickly. So I like to do a few minutes of samatha to start. But then um, I do a more awareness practice, a more open focus, vipassana, which I you know consider present time, time awareness. So for me, classic concentration or samatha is single, single point awareness and vipassana or insight tradition is uh, present time awareness. And so I do a little bit of stabilization focus just for a few moments or a minute or two or five minutes to really ground. And, and then I do a longer practice, um, usually at least 10 or 15 minutes. And here's, here's, a, here's a practice that will probably get you beyond 10 minutes. So you simply... Once your breathing is relaxed, once you've stabilized a little bit for the first few minutes, you simply take your attention and place it on the cycle of breath. You breathe in. And of course, you know, classic Buddhist instruction, when you're breathing in, know you're breathing in. <laughs> when you're breathing out, know that you're breathing out. It's actually all meditation needs to be. But in this practice, you breathe in, you know, breathe out. At the bottom of that cycle, count one, Do it, breathe in. Breathe out, keeping your attention on the breath. Bottom of that cycle, breathe two. Or count, sorry, count two. And do it that way, where you're really attending to the cycle of inhale and exhale. At the, at the end of each cycle, count. And whenever you lose track of where you are, start over. Hmm. And it might not take you uh, very long to get to the 10-minute mark. You might only get to, like, counting to 10.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and do that cycle until you can get to 10. Okay. And so, without getting lost, without getting distracted or lost or forgetting, um, that will get you beyond ten minutes. Because doing that to ten, sort of staying engaged for those ten cycles of breath, is actually pretty difficult and takes a couple of minutes to do if you breathe slowly and you're really attending. So, just doing it once will will add a few minutes to your meditation, maybe as much as five minutes. So, if you get through it, you know, poorly and have to start over once or twice or three times by the time you've gone through that process a few times, you're beyond 10 minutes of meditation. Uh, And it'll, it'll, it'll break that by giving you something to do essentially, or giving you a place of failure where you can then go and start over. So.
2: Hmm. uh, Wow. So I have uh, another question about this area, specifically around nootropics and things like modafinil and neuroenhancers. I mean, what, what is your work showing around that? You know, what can people do that, you know, enables them to, to take advantage of these things?
1: Yeah, um, I, I'm not a fan of modafinil or any of the uh, variants. Um, you know, I, I, I don't think they're good to take. I think that messing with histamine, which is what these things are doing, can be potentially dangerous. Um, there's a review paper which is whose, whose author escapes me, but the, the title of the paper is Approved and Investigational Uses of Modafinil. And, and I believe the paper is freely available if you Google, Google it. And if you look through the um, – it's, it's a metadata study with different papers, different studies uh, referenced. And if you look through it carefully enough, you'll discover that whenever there are underlying attention problems, ADHD, which of course isn't just a problem. you know, It's just, very, it's just a variant. Uh, but when you find these problems underlying um, in, the re- in, in the populations that were experimented upon, the side effect incidence goes way, way up. And the side effects for things that mess with histamine are profound. Um, and uh, uh, I, you know, I think that there's this—if if you think about the, the the trope of the ADHD geek, then you know what do we think? Okay, they have glasses, and they're you know awkward, and they might also have allergies or be physically a little bit you know uncoordinated. I believe all those things are actually connected to histamine. And so I think with a, with, a, with a different sort of basic histamine regulation system, if you then go and throw modafinil or other histamine agents on top of it, you're more likely to create significant side effects than you are for the average, you know, non-highly attending brain, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a problem. And I think that this, this gets to a, a significant uh for me, it's a rule in, in neuroenhancement, if you will. You should absolutely not chase things that have side effects ever. In fact, you should hold to the original definition of nootropic, which is only things that have, you know, pro brain, cognitive, memory, sleep, et cetera, effects, neuroprotective, but are not, uh, you know, uh, replete with any risk of significant side effects. Now, the incidence of side effects with the is pretty low; it's a couple percent. But when they show up. It's non-trivial. I, this happened to me. I, I took monafinil right before I helped design uh, TrueBrain. Mm-hmm. I was on monafinil. I, I was having trouble with my dissertation. I was, you know, working two jobs. I was teaching. I was, I, I was, you know, really overwhelmed with this massive dissertation project as well. Uh, EEG data is not easy to analyze. Uh, it was taking a long time. So um, I turned to monafinil because it, there was so much buzz around it. And uh, took it as prescribed, you know, 100 milligrams once a day in the morning. Um, I got a decent wakeful promoting effect from it, a solid, you know, 14, 16 hours of effect every day. Um, And on like the 15th day or something, on the 14th day at the end of the day, I was like, that's odd. My hands are kind of tender and itchy. That's really strange. And I, you know, thought it might have been the modafinil, so I didn't take it anymore. And the next day I woke up. And by the end of the second day, I was covered with head-to-toe pressure hives that continued to get worse. And my body went into this massive sort of systemic histamine overdrive, and I ended up in the hospital, in the emergency room, and you know, back and forth between the ER and urgent care several times in the, ne- the next several days on steroids and other kinds of things to shut this down, and you know, really narrowly avoided a massive health crisis by taking, from taking modafinil. Hmm. That was it. And so, my take on it is if you've got narcolepsy, modafinil is the drug for you. <laughs> but if you don't, then there's other things. I mean, I think the racetams and other sort of nootropics are significantly better at the positive features. And there's no real side effects in most, or really manageable side effects in most of these classic nootropics the, the things that are, that are choline derivatives or GABA derivatives, which would include the racetams. Um, or the herbals, or the, you know, the amino acids like tyrosine and theanine. I, I think these things are relatively innocuous and provide cognitive support. So, since you have these, use these. You know, when you get into the modafinils, when you get into the, the quote-unquote smart drugs, the Adderalls and other you know psychostimulants, I think that um, you're, you're you're courting disaster. You, you know, it's not worth, if you're highly performant or even average. There's no excuse for courting side effects for a small gain in performance. If you have some massive problem, then you take the drug that has potential side effects because you have to, you know, the the the, the trade-off for getting rid of your deficit is potentially you know worth it. So if you have narcolepsy, then take pedafinyl. Um but if you have ADHD, don't. If you have, you know, high performance brain already, don't you know, look for other things, meditate, you know, get off your day or actually get on your ass and meditate. You know, don't just do something, sit there. If you want to develop your brain, don't look for the, the, the quick fix because Adderall and, and other stimulants are habit forming, appetite suppressing, cardiovascular disturbing, um, modafinil causes histamine reactions. Um, a whole other class of experimental drugs are out there that actually don't have established safety profiles. You know, we're discovering all these research chemicals are out there in the, in the entropic world. That's, you know, that should not be exciting to you to take some untested uh, compound that was only found in a, in a research paper that was only ever used on animals and some psychonaut, you know, replicated a lab in China and has brought 10,000 pounds into Europe and the U.S. and is now selling it on a website and everyone's talking about how awesome it is as a cognitive enhancer. That should be something you run far, far away from. You know, there are enough, there's enough gain to be had. There are enough resources to be built with things like classic nootropics, including, you know, the safe ones, if you will, plus herbs, plus um, amino acids. Uh, And then when you add in nootropics, when you add in neurofeedback, when you add in mindfulness and meditation, when you have a good base of uh, well-hacked sleep, When your sleep's well well regulated, when your diet is well regulated, low sugar, vitamin D, high fat, um, you know, all these things can make incredible life altering change. And if the goal is transformation, you know, one massive sledgehammer effect should not be what you're going for. You should be looking, I mean, the research on human transformation suggests when you add in more activities, more mechanisms of transformation, the likelihood of discontinuous transformation goes way, way up. And when you hit three or four things you're doing to yourself or for yourself, uh, that's when you become an, you know, the next best version of yourself with new resources. Not when you just diet, just exercise, just meditate. It's when you add in three or four of these things. That's when everything starts to change and you end up dropping old behaviors and habits and developing new capacity. Um, so people need to think about this stuff as – shifts that are occurring that they can take control over and enhance. Not some quick fix, not some pill that is going to make a change. So nootropics are um, best used in a in a in an almost unnoticeable way, but used day in, day out to support high levels of output, to support better aging, to support better stress management, to support better sleep, but not for you know godlike laser-like attention for three hours on you know, uh, an amphetamine and not you know, perturbed sleep-wake cycles for 16 or 20 hours day in, day out on modafinil. Those are not good recipes for improved uh, function. In fact, there was recently some studies showing that modafinil, uh, some, some forced choice or, or essentially performance tasks for people on modafinil uh, were actually showing deficits in, in function, not enhancements. Uh, I mean, there's been some work showing that there's some learning improvement, uh, on some studies with an but some others are showing real dramatic, uh, even learning, if you will, uh, uh, impairments. And so I, am not sure that, that we're, we, we, really understand what's going on really with regards to some of these experimental drugs. Mm-hmm. And when, again, when you identify things that have side effects like psychostimulants, like modafinil, like, um, you know, some of the Parkinsonian drugs that are being used by biohackers uh, or things that have unknown side effect profiles, like some of the research chemicals out there that have been gleaned from you know, published studies, those are not the place that people should be operating in self experimentation. Not when there's so much other stuff that's well established, that's safe, and that is tractable, you know, to change your brain. So start someplace else.
6: Mm.
1: <laughs> be, 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 before you start with the prescription drugs, or research chemicals. Wow,
2: wow this has been uh, incredible. You've packed it with a lot of really uh, eye-opening insights to, to the work that you do. Where can people learn more about uh, your work and, and all of that stuff?
1: Thanks, so um, I, I appreciate the, the, the feedback, um, no, no pun intended. Um, we, have, <laughs> uh, we have neurofeedback centers um, in Los Angeles and in St. Louis right now. And we're opening up in uh, several other cities, including uh, Boston, San Diego, Portland, um, and Orange County. Um, but, uh, if folks want to look me up directly, they can find us at, find me at Andrew Hill, PhD at Twitter. Um, they can find peak brain at peakbraininstitute uh, dot com, uh, and, uh, you know, get in touch with us there. Uh, of course I'm also involved with true brain, trubrain.com, uh, which is a nootropic, uh, blend that we think is pretty, you know, sort of middle of the road in terms of, maximizing the, the safety and efficacy without doing anything crazy to your brain. Um, and uh, you know the, what, what I really love, if folks, are, if folks are, are, have their own questions sparked by this podcast or they have their own brain questions, I'd, I'd love to hear them. So hop on Twitter or you know, go to peakbraininstitute.com uh, and ask us on Olark. I, I'm always really curious to know what your own brain stories, questions, challenges are because we know so little
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and and hearing your stories and hearing your questions always helps me understand a little bit more about what is actually happening out there, you know, within your own three pounds of tissue nestled above your shoulders. So um, I encourage everyone to remember your brain is changing and you're in charge of it and and to take control of that process, but also, you know, ask questions, be curious, and uh, feel free to ask me some questions at uh, either Peak Brain or, uh, or Twitter. All right.
2: I have one last question, which is how we finish all our interviews yeah. at the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: Being, uh, um, being themselves following their unique self. You know, I, um, I, I, teach at UCLA and a lot of times students will ask me career advice and it really does boil down to, to one bit of information that I think is also what makes us unmistakable. If you lean into what drives you, what you love, what lights your fire, you become the unbelievable expert in that regardless of what it is it does not matter if it is traditionally associated with money or earnings or success you can be the world's best uh, underwater basket weaver you know who cares you can be the world's best street artist i mean banksy is probably not hurting for money right now if he you know sells a piece or hints a piece is being you know put someplace the world flocks to it because this was something that he couldn't not do you know, this is also the, the advice given to writers. If you can do anything else, do something else. If you can't do something <laughs> else, be a writer.
6: Yeah.
1: Um, because if you have that in you, unless you lean into it, it's not going to become this incredible, unique, refined expression of yourself. And um, I think that's probably pretty congruent with your only versus best uh, uh, comparison here. So that be- that way you become the only. You become the person who is... Uh, the unique refinement uh, and the pinnacle of your own particular genius uh, and skill. So uh, that's what I think makes you unmistakable, is leaning into yourself profoundly uh, with with, with profound dedication and honesty about what that is.
2: Hmm. Well, like I said, this has been fantastic and just packed with all sorts of insights. Um, I really, really appreciate you taking the time to join us and share your story with our listeners
1: been great talking to you and uh, uh, looking forward to uh, hearing some more of your shows.
2: Yeah. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Next time on The Unmistakable Creative. When we come out into life, I break it, we break it down into tenets. Things like communication, courage, responsibility, respect, honor, innovation. Like these are all things. These are what we call the tenets of mental toughness, right? These are all things that people think they're born with, that they're fixed like their eye color, that, that they either have it or they don't. But they're absolutely teachable things. Eric Davis joins us to share life and business lessons from being a Navy SEAL.
4: Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.
0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com/4keys. Use the number four K E Y S. That's unmistakablecreative.com/4keys, and download your free copy.